Our text is Joshua, Joshua chapter 6, and I'll read verses 1 through 24, slightly more than is in your bulletin. Joshua 6, verses 1 through 24. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand, its king and the mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all you men of war. You shall go all around the city once. This you shall do six days. And seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. But the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. It shall come to pass when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, that all the people shall shout with a great shout. Then the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, every man straight before him. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant, and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Proceed and march around the city, and let him who is armed advance before the ark of the Lord. So it was when Joshua had spoken to the people that the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord advanced and blew the trumpets, and the ark of the covenant of the Lord followed them. The armed men went before the priests who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard came after the ark, while the priests continued blowing the trumpets. Now Joshua had commanded the people, saying, You shall not shout or make any noise with your voice, nor shall a word proceed out of your mouth until the day I say to you, Shout, then you shall shout. So he had the ark of the Lord circle the city, going around it once. Then they came into the camp and lodged in the camp. And Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. Then seven priests bearing seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord went on continually and blew with the trumpets. And the armed men went before them. But the rear guard came after the ark of the Lord, while the priests continued blowing the trumpets. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. So they did six days. But it came to pass on the seventh day that they rose early about the dawning of the day and marched around the city seven times in the same manner. On that day only, they marched around the city seven times. And the seventh time it happened, when the priests blew the trumpets, that Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Now the city shall be doomed by the Lord to destruction, it and all who are in it. Only Ab the harlot shall live, she and all who are with her in the house, because she hid the messengers that we sent. And you by all means abstain from the accursed things, lest you become a sake of the accursed things, and make the camp of Israel a curse and trouble. But all the silver and gold and vessels of bronze and iron are consecrated to the Lord. They shall come into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted when the priests blew the trumpets, and it happened when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, and the people shouted with a great shout that the wall fell down flat. Then the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they took the city. And they utterly destroyed all that was in the city, both man and woman, young and old, ox and sheep, and donkey with the edge of the sword. But Joshua had said, 
to the two men who had spied out the country, Go into the harlot's house, and from there bring out the woman and all that she has, as you swore to her. And the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab, her father, her mother, her brothers, and all that she had. So they brought out all her relatives and left them outside the camp of Israel. But they burned the city and all that was in it with fire. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they put in the of the house of the Lord. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word, and we pray that you would uh, open our ears, open our minds, that we would clearly understand it. We thank you, Father, for your kindness to us on Christ's behalf and in his name. Amen. I want to set the context for what we just read. We're in Joshua 6, and yet pretty much the whole book of Deuteronomy is in a sense, a prequel to Joshua. Um, and I don't mean to diminish Deuteronomy. It's a fantastic book. And yet, it, in it, Moses recaps, and Deuteronomy begins just prior to Moses' death. And so it's narrated pretty much. It's gone from bad to worse. And so he uh, narrated this entire book just before his death. I want to uh, give you two quotes from Deuteronomy. The first is right at the beginning where Moses is describing what it was like 40 years earlier when they had just come up out of Egypt. He's speaking of people who have since died. Because the Lord hates us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Where can we go up? Our brethren have discouraged our hearts, saying the people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. Moreover, we have seen the sons of Anakim there. Then, eight chapters later, at Deuteronomy 9.1, Moses says this, Hear, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today and go in to dispossess nations greater and mightier than yourself cities great and fortified up to heaven. And so I wanted to read you that same phrase, cities great and fortified up to heaven. In the first excerpt, it's quoted from 38 years earlier where the people are complaining, saying, you brought us here to kill us all. What have you done? And yet here is Moses proclaiming to these children of these people, you are going to take these cities great and fortified, even though they extend into the heavens. Now. He said today, that's figurative. It wasn't that very day that it happened because Moses was long dead by the time Joshua crossed the river and attacked Jericho. But it wasn't long. It was probably within 90 days from the time that Moses is saying this that they did attack Jericho. But now I want to relate to you some of what happened in that brief period of time. Moses died. He was mourned by the people for 30 days. Joshua takes over. He sends the two spies into the land, and they're in the city. Rahab hides them, and then she sends them out into the hills and says, lay low for three days. They do. And so then there's another three days at least before they cross the Jordan. It dried up just as the Red Sea had. The priests step in with the ark. All the, it's spring. There is floodwaters, but yet the waters are held up above and so they cross over on dry land. 
They take 12 stones, they build a memorial. And then we have uh, Deuteronomy 1.3 and Joshua 4.19 indicate that we have 70 days between those two periods, and Joshua 4.19 is right before this. But then what happens next in Joshua 5 is pretty weird. All the men are circumcised because they'd not done that while they wandered in the wilderness. And so they've waited until they've crossed the river and are within sight of the city that they're going to attack when all the men are put out of battle commission. And so then they obviously heal up and then comes what we've just read. I want to point out four things in the first nine verses of Joshua 6. In verses 1 and 2, I want to point out the situation. Now Jericho was securely shut up because of the children of Israel. None went out and none came in. Now Jericho has been living in the shadow of millions of future invaders now for months. You can't imagine that those people were having very uh, enjoyable lives right now. And they have sealed the city up because they know now that the Jews are coming. They had, when the Jews were crossing, remember I said it was springtime, there was the flood. That's when harvest come. And so the, the uh, people of Jericho had harvested their crops. And so while they're harvesting their crops, they're probably living in fear that any day they could be attacked. So they're out there harvesting crops in the shadow of this humongous army, this huge people. And then look at verse 2. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hands, its king and the mighty men of valor. God said, I have given them into your hands. He's speaking past tense. So God spoke of the conquest of Jericho as if it had already happened. It's like they're all buttoned up nice and tight just for you. This is my present to you. Verses 3 through 5 I term the command or the plan. You shall march around the city, all you men of war. You shall go all around the city once. This you shall do six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horn before the ark. The seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. It shall come to pass when they make a long blast of the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people shall shout with a great shout. Then the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up every man before him. Now, if some earthly general were to have that as his plan, I don't think he would remain a general. So see, God's allowed to have a plan like this, but no human would ever come up with this. This is ridiculous. Yet, that's exactly what God commanded. And then what's interesting is verse 6, Then Joshua the son of Nun called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horn before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Proceed and march around the city and let him who is armed advance before the Ark of the Lord. It doesn't even appear that Joshua waited until the next day. I think he went right back and did it right then. Why not? Let's get this party started. He has faith. And then what do the people do? Starting at verse 8. So it was when Joshua had spoken to the people that the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord advanced and blew the trumpets, and the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord followed them. The armed men went before the priests who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard came after the Ark while the priests continued blowing the trumpets. 
So the people did not hesitate either. This is so vastly different from what had happened with these people's parents earlier, much, much earlier, at that point where I commented on Deuteronomy 1, where Moses is recapping what has happened. When the spies returned then, they were all cowardly. They all took occasion to indulge in their fears and cowardice and refuse to go where God had commanded them to go. And yet now, the situation has entirely changed because the people have entirely changed. God killed off all of them except Joshua and Caleb. And here they are. And we're talking, of course, the, the men fit for war, 20 years old and above. So some of these people here were children then. And they've now lived in the wilderness experiencing faith like their parents could not accept. Yet they've accepted it. They've embraced it. So the cities are still great and fortified up to heaven. That has not changed. This Jericho is still buttoned up tighter than a drum. Yet the people are unafraid. They have confidence in God. Matthew Henry has a wonderful quote here. He says, they needed not to fight and therefore needed not to fear because God fought for them. Now, before I go on past verse 9, I want to talk a little bit about ancient Jericho. Ancient Jericho is about two miles from what you would now look on a map of Israel and see as Jericho. The ancient city was thought lost or made up for a long time. Unbelievers used it as a criticism of the Bible. And yet, back in the mid-1860s, a British engineer by the name of Charles Warren excavated in this thing called Tel El Sultan. So this Tel is like a fake hill. It's like a man-made hill. Uh, I don't know if anybody here has ever seen the mounds that the Indians had made in this country. Down around St. Louis, I know there are mounds. Over in southern Ohio, I know when I was growing up, there are mounds. I've never been to see them. But th these hills would be huge by comparison to these mounds because these Indian mounds are typically burial grounds. But this is a whole city, a whole city that was essentially buried in earth. And it's not uncommon. They showed, I watched a video, and there are other tells that have never been excavated. They're just old cities that have been buried in, in dirt. So this British engineer excavated what is now known to be Jericho and proved that it was an ancient city. So that was back in 1867. And then 40 years later, a German-Austrian uh, archaeological team uh, found that there was a retaining wall or a revetment around that entire ancient city. They excavated enough to see that there was this stone wall that encircled it. More about that later. And then another 20 years later, a British man, an archaeologist by the name of John Garstang, he excavated there and found that there was a collapsed wall, just as the Bible had said, and that there were signs of violent destruction of this city. Garstang, based on his knowledge of the pottery of the day, dated the find at 1400 BC, which confirms the biblical timeline. But then, he was heavily criticized for this because, see, at this point, by the 1930s, it was becoming very unfashionable to be a Christian, not in the well-to-do circles because they'd all abandoned the Bible as being beneath their dignity because everybody knew that was just a foolish book of myths. Uniformitarian, 
Mechanism has disproven it. Evolution has disproven it. And now archaeology is beginning to disprove it. And so it was not, it was not seen as cool at all to believe in the Bible story in the 1930s. But John Garstang said that it, this had proved it, yet he was taking flack for it. So he recommended that a young up-and-coming archaeologist by the name of Kathleen Kenyon undertake a dig there. Now, I think his suggestion was early, but then the war came, of course, and it kind of put, put to anything like that. So her excavation, though, occurred from 1952 to 1958, seven years she was there excavating. And she actually pioneered a lot of how modern excavation occurs. And so what she would do, and she and her team would do, is dig a big square hole and just dig down, 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 meticulously cataloging all that they're finding in that square hole as they go down. And so she found up to 20 different distinct time periods where that city was occupied with different cultures. And so she documented the fire. She documented that there were stores of grain that were burned in this city. So everybody came to agreement. Yes, this is obviously Jericho. That had already been accepted, but this just proved it beyond any doubt. But she said, that the time in which this city was destroyed was around 1550 BC. So 150 years before the Jews came up out of Egypt. So she said that the Jews had to have found this city already destroyed. They didn't destroy it. It was already destroyed. So that held. In the 50s, you know, she spoke and, and she was this young, uh, and by this time maybe not so young, but yet she was still this hotshot archaeologist from England. Well, then along came a man by the name of Bryant Wood, and we'll get to him in a few minutes. But so I want to talk a little bit about the, the design of this city, and really a lot of these ancient cities. The Bible was criticized for the fact that these ancient cities even existed. Then they're discovered. The Bible was criticized that these cities were fortified. Everybody knows those cities aren't fortified. Then they were found to be fortified. Then the Bible is criticized for the timing. It just doesn't do that at all. It doesn't work out with the timing. So I want to describe this city. This city, is, its footprint is not very big. It's very, very tiny, actually. It's only about eight or 900 feet long, and it's kind of laid out south to north at a little bit of an angle. So the top of the city at the north would be like 10 degrees, and then down here would be like 190 degrees. And it's oddly shaped. It's not like they had you know, designers that were laying it out in city squares like we do. But so it's... That, that uh, revetment that the Germans had found was about eight to 900 feet long, and it was maybe about uh, 400 feet wide at the widest. So when you, when you draw that up, that's pretty tiny. But the way, what it consisted of was rock wall about 12 to 15 feet high all the way around that. That's like a half mile long wall, this 12 to 15 feet high. Imagine you have a, a, a barbecue pit in your backyard, like uh, we built, uh, David helped me build one in my backyard. So I built a burn pit, and so I took the bricks and I circled them three times up. And then I dumped gravel in, crushed gravel, probably about four or five inches. What would have happened to that crushed gravel had I not formed the pit first? What am I gonna do? Am I gonna dump the gravel down and then sweep it all into a little con uh, container? And then, no, no, no. You put the rocks down and then you fill it with earth. And so if you don't, it just spreads out all over. So these fortified cities, 
they took a long time to build. These were, these were paranoid people. They built these cities to be defended. So they built this huge rock wall, and then they fill the whole place with earth. Then what happens is they build additional walls atop them. And so in Jericho, there were two rings of walls. One was just up from the outer wall, probably not more than 20 feet. And then the other one was maybe another 50 feet inside of that. So you had these, the center of the area, and then you had people that lived between the inner ring and the outer ring, and then you had the fall off to the earth below. So that's the way these cities were laid out, and Jericho was no different. For the, for the Jewish, 600,000 men most likely, because it said all, when you look, when you look at, uh, let me see, verse 3, you shall march around the city, all you men of war. So I don't think any were left out. So you've got 600,000 men that are marching around a fairly small area. And so they were probably some distance from the wall because they're not going to be risk being uh, hit by arrows or missiles being launched from the city. But so that's the situation. You've got this ancient city. It's fairly small footprint. And you've got the Jews uh, around it at a distance, maybe at least several hundred feet away. Now I want to return to the text. We'll go back to verse 10. Now Joshua had commanded the people, saying, You shall not shout or make any noise with your voice, nor shall a word proceed out of your mouth until the day I say to you, Shout, then you shall shout. So he had the ark of the Lord circle the city, going around at once. Then they came into the camp and lodged in the camp. So there are these horns blowing, though. If you remember when I read it, they trump, the trumpet sounds are constant. These seven priests are constantly blowing horns that whole time. But no one's talking. No one's allowed to talk. There must be noise with hundreds of thousands of people marching around. There obviously is noise, but they're not talking. Can you imagine being in Jericho and looking out at this? I mean, that first day must have really been weird. You're seeing them walking all around. What are they doing? Are they looking for a weakness? Who knows? What are they doing? And then they disappear. It's not long. It's probably about a mile march. It probably takes about an hour, an hour and a half. So that first day, I think it's later in the day, they march around, they go back to camp. Next day, in the morning, it says, they do the same thing. The second day, they rise early, repeat, they repeat the procession, and they return to camp. Again, what must the people of Jericho be thinking about this? What must the Jews be thinking of this? Are they having doubts? Now, these people have faith. They're not like their parents, but yet even those of us that have faith have doubts. Second day, third day, fourth day, fifth day, every day it's the same. They leave the camp in the morning, they march around for about an hour, an hour and a half, and they go back to camp. I mean, the people of Jericho must be thinking, what on earth is this about? These people are weird. And then comes the seventh day, right? And this day is going to be different. But it came to pass on the seventh day that they rose early about the dawning of the day and marched around the city seven times in the same manner. On that day only, they marched around the city seven times. Now, something different. So the people in Jericho have to be much more curious now about what's going on. Where is this going? And the Jews must be, must be getting worn out. 
It's probably about a mile circuit, seven times, seven miles. 600,000 people trudging around this small city all day, all day. I mean, they do it at sunup, and it's probably 5, 6 p.m. before they're finally finishing up their seventh uh, trip around it. I doubt they walked fast. Why? God didn't tell them to walk fast, and plus they're all armed, and the, you've got the priests walking, blowing the things, carrying the ark. Everyone's tired. The people of Jericho are tired watching this, and the Jews are tired participating in this. But I believe by this time, the Jews have been instructed by Joshua what's going to happen. You see where he instructs them at the time that it blows, like from 17 to 20, but it makes sense that that was probably by that time somewhat known. He's not taking this moment to educate everyone because they're all around. They've got this, this city encircled. So Joshua can't possibly say this speech to all these people and have them hear it. So they know it. This is something they know. So the parade has finally ended. And let's go back to verse 17. And this is Joshua. I'll start at 16. And the seventh time it happened when the priests blew the trumpets that Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Now the city shall be doomed by the Lord to destruction, it and all who are in it. Only Rahab the harlot shall live, she and all who are with her in the house, because she hid the messengers that we sent. And you by all means abstain from the accursed things, lest you become accursed when you take of the accursed things and make the camp of Israel a curse and trouble it. But all the silver and gold and vessels of bronze and iron are consecrated to the Lord. They shall come into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted when the priest blew the trumpets. And it happened when the people heard the sound of the trumpet and the people shouted with a great shout that the wall fell down flat. Then the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they took the city. So you remember I described the city to you. You have this large rock wall that goes around. It's about a half a mile in length. You've got two other red brick walls that are made from a different material. They're, they're uh, fashioned walls. They're not just made of big natural rocks. They're, they're fashioned bricks. And they're probably about 8 to 10 feet tall. One of them is just inside, just maybe about 10 or 15 feet inside that outer wall. And then you've got another one that's maybe another 50 feet inside of that. When Kathleen Kenyon uh, discovered this, she did that, remember I told you she had done those uh, big squares that she kind of led in terms of a means of, of uh, digging into a place. She went through all these layers, and what they found is just outside of that rock wall were piles of all the red bricks, the wall that had been above the rock wall. So when these people yelled at that moment, God knocked the red wall down. And the red wall fell out and formed a ramp. And it says the, the soldiers went up. Don't go to the left or the right. Just go straight up and enter the city, attack the city. And that's exactly what happened. And so this woman, Kathleen Kenyon, who appears to not have been a friend of Christians because she dated it at 1550 almost intentionally to disagree with her her. Uh, her peer that had come 25 years before her and say that this can't possibly, uh, the Bible can't possibly be right 
in dating it at, at 1400. And yet she documents this. There are drawings online that show drawings that they made in the 50s that show the rock wall and show these big pile of red rocks extending all the way out, forming a ramp right into the city, all the way around the city. It's remarkable, except for a portion of wall up in the north where it's thought Rahab lived. And so the wall, she was on the outer wall where her house was located, the wall didn't fall down. And so she could be saved by the two spies that came to protect her. Bryant Wood, Dr. Bryant Wood, uh, studied this throughout the 80s. He got his doctoral uh, degree and he did his dissertation on late bronze Canaanite pottery, which is around 1400 BC. The reason Dr. Kathleen Kenyon had said that it was 1550, not 1400, was she did not find a particular Cyprian pottery that was popular around 1400 BC. So she said, if this had been destroyed in 1400 BC, I surely would have found some of that imported Cyprian pottery. So she based her analysis on the absence of something that she expected to be there. But the previous fellow, her cohort in uh, England, John Garstang, had based his on the pottery that he did find, saying it dates to 1400 BC. And this Dr. Bryant Wood said that the pottery that's there that he's studied now for two decades, it's 1400 BC pottery. It's not 1550 BC pottery. It's what Canaanites would have made. And so she was reading socioeconomic standards into a city that she ought not have been. The Cyprian pottery was very expensive. These people, apparently, at least where she dug, weren't very wealthy, so they wouldn't have had this expensive pottery, but they had knockoff pottery that resembles it. So they made their own that looks like the wealthy Cyprian pottery that they would have imported from Cyprus. And so Dr. Bryant Wood is very confident in this. I mean, he has no doubts whatsoever. Now, he's a believer, but he said she had no reason to date this at 1550, but when you read about other archaeologists who have followed in her footsteps and believe her and still cite her and are not believers, they're just quick to disparage this guy. Oh, he's just a Christian. You can't believe anything. He says he's a Christian. So see, they don't want to believe the facts, and so they don't want to believe facts that come from Christians because we're biased, of course. In 2012, uh, people created a video, and it's called Jericho Found, and they interview Dr. Bryant. They bring him over to Israel, and they bring over a doctor who had been on uh, Kathleen Kenyon's staff, a Dr. Parr from England. Now, he's not a Christian, and yet they bring him over, and they, they, in, they interview him, and they walk around the ruins, and they talk about everything that they're seeing, and he's confirming everything that uh, Dr. Bryant Wood said, but he would not go so far as to say that Kenyon was wrong. You know, she had every reason to date this at 1550 BC, but he could see how it could be 1400 BC. I want to talk a little bit about the symbolism that we see in this book about what I'd read. Jericho was the very first city attacked in the Promised Land, the very first city sacked by the Jews. God commanded that it not be looted. Everything was to be destroyed. Now, 
It's true of all of the land that they were invading that all things that breathed were to be killed. I mean, it just sounds so horrendous, but that's exactly what God had commanded. Everything that has the breath of life in its nostrils was to be killed in this territory they were invading. But here in Jericho, they were also not to salvage anything. The only thing they were to get were all the metal things, gold, silver, bronze, iron. Those all went into the treasury of the Lord. None of it went to the people. So we know that Achan messed up. Achan took a chunk of silver, he took a chunk of gold, he took a Babylonian garment, he hid them in his tent, and he paid the price. In the coming chapter, you see that in, in Joshua, uh, Joshua 7. But yet, why? Why did God want all the stuff from Jericho? I believe this was a burnt offering, a burnt offering to the Lord. And there were five offerings, and the burnt offering is the one where everything is burned up. The whole animal is burned up. You don't get to eat any of it. The priests don't get to eat any of it. The person that brings the animal doesn't get to eat any of it. It's all burned up. Now, it's so strange. There are a few things here that were very unusual. The command not to loot resulted in Jericho presenting this conundrum to modern archaeologists who don't want to believe the Bible. Because why, why would an attacker take a city and then not salvage all of its grain? This city was burned with all of its grain stores in place. So it's obvious that there was no siege because a siege ends when the people run out of food. There was plenty of food in Jericho, but it wasn't stolen. It was burned. Why would people burn something that valuable? It's because they were commanded to. So they were commanded to burn it, and so they did. So that's some of the oddities about about Jericho. Uh, there are no other evidences of the wall, of the interior walls falling out like that. In all the other ancient cities they've excavated, it's uncommon, it's unusual, it's very weird. Now, we all agree that the strategic plan of attack that God had set down was pretty weird. You know, you just don't take a city, a fortified city, by yelling at the walls. You know, I can't get anything fixed in my house by yelling at it. You know, we might all choose yelling at our car or at our stereo or at something. I'll yell at that, that device that the young guys are walking around with trying to control this microphone. It's not going to make it better. But God chose to do this. He chose to knock it down in that way. 600,000 soldiers encircling this city would have been about 300 men deep. 300 men deep. I mean, it's just an enormous number of people storming into this city. And the city was small. Ai, the next city that was sacked, was said to have 12,000 people. We don't know how many people were in Jericho, but I don't think there were that many. So you've got 600,000 people invading a city of less than 12,000 people. I mean, they had every reason to be afraid. So some more of the symbolism. There were seven priests... There were seven days, there were seven trumpets, seven times, lots of sevens. We know that's God's favorite number. I think it's why it's a favorite number in Western countries. You know, uh, seven isn't fav a favorite number in China. Eight's a favorite number in China. But seven isn't nearly as popular in China as it is in Western countries. Lucky seven, lucky seven. But so God obviously had an intention for this. When you read from verse 4, 
to verse 16, the word occurs 14 times, seven or seventh. Again, there's this symbology at work here. God is symbolizing that this is his city. This is devoted to him. In Numbers 10, God had had silver trumpets made in order to give direction to the people. They were to blow one trumpet for this, blow both trumpets for that. But yet here he doesn't have them using the silver trumpets. He has them using the ram's horns. It's referred to as the horn of Jubilee. This is the, this is the same horn that would symbolize the year of Jubilee, signal it. So they're entering into the promised land. They're taking Jericho, the first city, as the first fruits for God, and they're doing it with ram's horns, declaring freedom to the people. They are conquering. They are decimating all these people that are here, and the freedom is theirs. Here they are, after all that captivity in Egypt, now they're free, and they're moving into their possession, and God has them blowing these ram's horns to signal that jubilee that they're entering into. So see, this song, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, it's wrong, don't you think? God fought the battle of Jericho. Joshua had very little to do with it, and Joshua would be the first to tell you that. When we get to heaven, he's gonna say, oh, I hate that song. Don't ever sing that song up here. See, it wasn't a military siege of Jer Jericho. This was a religious procession. This was all religious. That's why the priests are right there. Later, the priests aren't allowed to go into battle. When they use the ark and they try to fight the Philistines with the ark, God takes it from them. You're going to try to drag me out into your war, are you? I'll, I'll show you. And he took the ark from them. Didn't give it back to them for a while. Matthew Henry has this to say about the Battle of Jericho, and I think it's just beautiful. He always has such wonderful things to say. It was to try the faith, obedience, and patience of the people, to try whether they would observe a precept which to human policy seemed foolish to obey and believe a promise which in human probability seemed impossible to be performed. They were also proved whether they could patiently bear the reproaches of their enemies and patiently wait for the salvation of the Lord. Thus by faith, not by force, the walls of Jericho fell down. So the people shouted with a great shout and the wall fell down flat. Now one of the things that you really get tired of hearing when you look at this up is everybody talks about the earthquake that took down the walls. Well, I don't read about an earthquake taking down the walls. I don't think there was an earthquake that took down the walls. And it's kind of bothersome to me when I see Christians speaking of the earthquake that took down the walls of Jericho. No, I think God took down the walls of Jericho. It wasn't the people's voices. That was a cry to God to act upon what he had promised and then God fulfilled it in faith. Then the people went up, every man straight before him, and let me reread verse 21. And they utterly destroyed all that was in the city, both man and woman, young and old, ox and sheep and donkey with the edge of the sword. Now, can you do that? Do you want to see your husband doing that, your sons doing that? It's horrendous. It's horrendous. But everybody in the army was an executioner working for the Lord. Everybody. They all had to execute old people, men and women, uh, women with their babies 
clutching at their legs, uh, pregnant women, they all died. God wanted them all dead. And when you read popular literature, of course, oh, this is horrendous. And what they also don't want to have us talk about in, in modern times is the fact that this was a holy war. Only Islamists are allowed to use that phrase, holy war. Christians dare not use it or we get castigated. But the fact is, this was a holy war. God made it so. It's not politically correct to use it, but God had pronounced judgment upon Canaan. He had told them when he sent them into Egypt that they'll be called back to be his tool of judgment upon these people whose sin was not yet full. So God had sentenced that entire culture to death. Matthew Henry says, the God of heaven easily can and certainly will break down all the opposing power of his and his church's enemies. So see, this is an indication to us in our time that God continues to fight our battles. We are not alone. We are not apart from God. God does it. We are just his servants in the process. So 40 years in the wilderness, God created this new people, a new people that obviously had far greater faith and far greater diligence in being obedient than had their parents. And they were prepared for the work that God had them to do in taking Jericho and all of the ensuing Canaanite lands. They acted in obedience and they acted in faith. Now perhaps their faith was not complete. There may have been some that doubted in their midst, but yet they were obedient. They had learned obedience in the wilderness. So God fought the battle of Jericho. Peter, uh, or uh, Paul rather, uh, in writing to the Philippians said, he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. God began the work that day. God begins the work in us. He will complete the work in us. And see, what was being destroyed was sin. What we want to be destroying in our world, in our day, is sin. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the truth of the time that we live in. Uh, uniformitarianism has been shown to be false. Uh, evolution has been shown to be false. Archaeologists have been shown to be duplicitous and liars. Uh, Lord, you have blessed us in living at a time uh, unlike that of 100 years ago where there were so many Christians capitulating to liberalism. And we thank you, Lord, for those that fought the good fight during that period and remained faithful to your word and true to it. And we live at a time now where it's so much easier for us to be faithful to your word because all of history has been shown to be uh, reflecting the reality of your word, and yet still Christians fight against it. Uh, we are embarrassed for our brethren, Lord, who, if they be true believers, will one day stand in heaven and hang their head in shame that they fought against you. We ask you now to honor yourself, to glorify yourself, to continue to do the work that you have begun uh, in us and in our world. We thank you in Christ's name and for the sake of the building up of his kingdom. Amen.